Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where a bunch of writers sit around, drink tasty beverages, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your host writers today are John Schmidt and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 130th, interview with Gail Carriger. Welcome, Gail. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for inviting me and having me. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, I'm so excited. John said that you had joined his book club meeting. I'm like, oh, will she talk to us? Because that's exciting. I love your work. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to talk to a book group or on a podcast or what have you. It's, you know, I, I authors get pretty disconnected from their readers and, you know, from like, I don't know, real life in general. <laughs> so, yeah. Make you make it sound like we all sit in a dark room with a small door that opens up and pushes through in a cup of coffee or glass of wine. What do you mean you don't? <laughs> oh, that would be so nice that, I, that actually someone gave me these things. But of course, everyone knows that you have the chirp. I love the chirp. I'm not the only one who loves the chirp. Tell people, oh, <laughs> how did you come up with this amazing thing? <laughs> non sequitur man just picked up a fish. The chirp is my newsletter. How did I come up with it? Um, well, basically, I was like, well, writers need newsletters in this day and age. Uh, but I really want to make it super fun. And I want to make it basically the kind of things that thing that my readers would really enjoy reading just like they do my books. So I try to like write it in the same sort of tone and base and everything very chatty and gossipy. And yeah, that, that, give myself permission to do it only once a month. So that that means I can put some actual thought and care and work into it. And yeah, I drop fun little tidbits about what I'm working on. And I always uh, have little offers and things that you can't get anywhere else. Um, and it basically has allowed me to kind of pull back on some of my social media and stuff because I can just be like, look, that'll be in the chirp. Like, if you really want to know, just get my newsletter. <laughs> It'll be fine. I love it because I, I had subscribed to Katie Murphy's, C.E. Murphy's and, and now this one. And it's this is something that we haven't really talked about that much of how to promote yourself through something like a newsletter instead of, I, I don't know about you, but I am on the constant stream of people tweeting about, hey, I've got a book. Did you see my book, my pretty book, my cover, my hashtag? So you say this this kind of heads that off for you. You don't feel obliged to sit on social media as much? Yeah. And when I am on social media, I get to use it and the platform, like sort of how it's designed and how I like to engage with it the most. So, you know, and, and of course, I'll still say when I have a book out and stuff like that. I mean, I'm assuming if somebody has bothered to follow me on Twitter, they are following me because they like my books. So <laughs> I've just, I just assume if anybody follows me anywhere, they're doing so because they like my books. Like that's like, why else do you follow an author? So presumably you would like to know if I have a new book out. So I'll let you know that. But most of the rest of the time, it's like pretty Victorian clothes and some octopi and this crazy, funny story of a thing that happened to me at a coffee shop and stuff like that, because that's what I'm interested in putting out into the universe is sort of fun, silly, pretty things. I, I love it. But I, I'm going to argue because there's a couple people that I have learned to follow on Twitter just because I really like their snarky little insights. and. <laughs> Not, not in the, I mean, it's if people are going, you know, constantly negative things, I tend to, okay, maybe I don't want that high on my feed, but I try to curate it to people that have clever things to say or interesting insights and. Yeah, but do you buy their books? I buy many of their books. Well, well I guess it's working for them then. Yeah, so it's. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, 
but yeah, but I, I just decided that uh, because you can get like booted off of Twitter super easily or Facebook can just put your page down or Facebook can just go down uh, and Twitter can do the same. Uh, I, I was like, well, I just kind of want a space where I sort of own it a bit more and I feel a bit safer. Also, I don't want to necessarily tell everybody, cough, cough, my publishers, etc., uh, certain parts of information like projects I'm working on and stuff because then the everybody out in the social media world uh, starts to think it's actually going to happen or starts to put information on Goodreads that Gail's writing a blah 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 and I'm like well, I didn't that was willfully misinterpreted so instead <laughs> I feel like in my newsletter I could be a little bit more honest about these kinds of things and I can like look I'm working on this series this is the series name it's not the title and I just trust that the readers of the newsletter are going to be a little bit more like thoughtful because they've taken the time to subscribe to it and presumably the time to read it um, was it an evolution? Did you do something like a uh, live journal or dream with before? Yes. This? Yeah. Yeah. I'm old guard. So I did. I, I live journal was my first blogging platform. Then I moved to Tumblr. Now I have WordPress and I do still blog, but it's just that a lot of people have moved off of blogging. And also a lot of people don't want to digest information that way. I don't like to digest the information that way. I, I prefer to like read a digest form of something and then go and deep dive into the articles that interest me. So I tried to construct my newsletter a little bit like that. Like here's the events that I'm going to be at. Here's the you know next live Q&A you can catch me at. Here's my recent releases. Here's my works in progress. And then here's like a crazy story about my cat and this insane, <laughs> you know, thing that happened to me as in my author life, you know, and then and here's, you know, a little bit secret information about like a contract I'm working on and stuff like that. And that's part of like the promise I make to my newsletter. Like if you want to, if you want to know anything first, the newsletter gets it first. So I do cover reveals to my newsletter first. I do like, total sneak like for example amazon slash audible is really being really slow and annoying and has been about uploading audiobooks mm -hmm. and so i was and they have an exclusivity contract so you know once you're uploaded to audible you can't be uploaded anywhere else and so i was like yeah but they're taking forever to do this and that's really maddening and so i will offer it directly for sale uh, until the moment that Amazon has it available, but only to my newsletter. So if you're on my newsletter, you can buy actual direct sale audiobook MP3s from me and then download and own them forever. And Amazon can never take them away from you. Uh, but then the moment that Amazon posts it, I can take it down immediately. Um, and then I'm still in compliance with, uh, you know, so I can do like fun stuff like that, but only kind of with my newsletter because it's not public facing basically. Right. That makes a lot of sense on this. Uh, how, I mean, what is it like just waking up every day? We, I just imagine you sleep in the most beautiful dressing gown as the fairy godmother of it's velvet. You know, <laughs> silk velvet, mind you. Well, absolutely. Silk velvet, you know, maybe with, I don't know, a little bit embossing, some embroidery. You, you have to <laughs> describe it, but <laughs> there's lace. There's definitely lace and probably a ruffle. Probably a ruffle or two. Um, so what what what's it like? I am a I, I hate to break everybody's bubble, but I have a normal human being. No, uh, uh, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I do have a predilection for silky, fabulous clothing, no matter what 
part of my life is involved. So there is that. Um, I do live in a Victorian, so there's that. <laughs> it destroys my image. Um, what What do you feel that sometimes the expectations of the genre readers are that you are that you're satisfying with all the Victoriana? Uh, I think there's a. I, I mean, I think steampunk, like much science fiction and fantasy, is at its root kind of. Uh, escapism in the best way uh so the the aspects of what interests me are the aspects of the uh, old world that is similar to how we are today and different so i put a very modern voiced character as a general rule as my main character in the past and i tend to use a fish out of water conceit for that so that i can humorously describe what that past was like so far as i know uh, and so far as I can play with and invent. And I think that that like the, the ideas behind retrofuturism in general are sort of like it has this touchstone of what the, the be- before times were like. But it also has this sort of surrealist element, this sort of skewed reality. And I think that's where a lot of this kind of nested appeal is. I, I like the term retrofuturism. I don't think we really. Yeah. I haven't really talked about that as much, but that does create an interesting question because you, with all of your voice of your characters, they do have a very modern, I mean, they would not sound out of place going on. You haven't gone off to try to say zoons or any. <laughs> no, I try to make my, for me, the most important thing when I write is to make people smile and laugh when they read my books and to make them enjoy those books. And so I do tend to avoid those aspects of Victoriana that are going to make it difficult to read my stuff. My primary thing when I'm writing is that it be a fun thing to read, that it be comfortable. If you like that style. I mean, I do have Victorianish aspects to the way I write. Like I do like purple prose. I like amusing purple prose. I like alliteration. I like long words, kind of Victorianish sounding words. Um, I definitely do sort of dialogue and sentence structure. That's a lot more British, if not historical. So you know, I do have some things like that that do make it feel a little old fashioned, uh, but I don't want to have that monkey around with the enjoyment of the prose or the story at all. Uh, and so it is it is sort of a delicate balance to tread. Uh, it's fun, though, but but that's because of what I want out the end is for people to have fun reading the books. And so I will sacrifice a certain amount of historical relativeness or historical realism, for lack of a better term, in order for the books themselves to be enjoyable. It makes perfect sense. And you're going to have to answer a question that's been going through my head too, much in the way that I had been mispronouncing Carragher in my head for a while. So help me understand how to perfectly pronounce Lord Akeldama. That's how I say it, Akeldama. So it's Aramaic, I think, originally in origin. Uh, So I don't know, uh, and I don't think most would, exactly how to pronounce that word. Um, So I don't... Biblical scholars on that. Yes, exactly. But that's how I pronounce it. And that's mostly because a later character in one of my spinoff series calls him Dama. So I always pronounce it that way in my head because I always knew she was going to exist and that is what she would call him. So I put the... Is that that prudent? That's prudent. Yeah, that's a root. Um, And that's because Dama is a combination of dad and mom. Um, That's that's Secret knowledge. uh, Yes. So it's a little bit of a foreshadow because basically that's what he is to her. Um, So yes, that (laughs) it's Akeldama in my head, but I'm not entirely sure if that's actually how it's, I mean, I'm a terrible reader in that I can't pronounce 
anything properly because I learned everything by reading it. <laughs> I, I want to shout out there for a minute to everybody who learns their words by reading. I mean, I had heard the word segue pronounced all of my life. And then the segue ride the scooter thing came out. And then I saw somebody reading and they they ran across the word, which in my head had always been Sieg, S-E-G. Yes. I'm like, yes. wait, wait, what? What? <laughs> my mind was blown instantly. Yeah, it's so funny. And that still happens to me. You know, like I've 30 plus books to my name and I'm still like, wait, that's how that word is said out loud? Who knew? <laughs> Just, Who knew? I think it's beautiful. It means that everybody who mispronounces words like that, we can all with charity be in our heart think this person learned a word from reading. Exactly, exactly. And that's perfect. It's just, I don't want to seek from one topic to another, but. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but some days you have to slap the octopus on the street. And <laughs> so long as you do it gracefully. Yes. Well, that's straight out of, out of your question blog off of your website and for anyone who wants to know the full story go there <laughs> all the things are on my website it is a repository of knowledge uh, at least very obscure knowledge about one weird quirky author but <laughs> i would just imagine if you ever were going to have the fully illustrated version of the parasol protectorate would we get brian kessinger to do the art <laughs> we are associated a lot We've never actually met in person, but we both kind of like know about each other because in both of our books, my art and his and my art, his art and my books became popular right around the same time. And so there was a lot of people sharing my book with him and people sharing his art with me. Otto and Victoria. Yes. The octopus yeah. and the lady. Yeah. And yeah. you write about a lady who and the bronze octopus or many yes. ladies. Actually. Yes. There's an octopus thematic trope through all of my books because it's my favorite animal. So. I, I love a cephalopod myself. If we ever meet, you will find there's a lot of octopus everywhere from my shower curtain on out. So. Yay! I Yay! love them. They're the best. Well, they're smart, you know, they're and so I'm convinced smart. they're smarter than certain people that I've run into in my life. <laughs> I'm sure they are. They're planners. They're plotters. They're also <laughs> willing to cover their tracks up. I mean... They're collectors of shiny objects. They're collectors of shiny objects. I was reading something today that was a little bit of a, of a minister who'd said, you know, there was the discussion is God of an octopus. I'm like, well, you know, technically when you have the cross, <laughs> four limbs plus four, you know, points is eight. So he just went home. <laughs> and, maybe a little bit of and when God made man in so many of them, it's the original being was twice the Greeks had the belief that we were split into men and women. And we're always trying to rejoin and become an eight armed perfection. And four warned is four armed, but eight arms is an octopus. That's true. <laughs> I, I, for one, welcome our new cephalopod overlords. But I, I, there's a sci fi book I read recently that hypothesized that uh, that monkey based or primate based. Uh, like life is actually the least likely to evolve intelligence in the universe and that most of the universe's aliens are cephalopodic or squid-like in some form or another and that like our form of alien is actually the most obscure. I thought it was, it was, it's a charming book. It's called Earth Fathers Are Weird and I highly recommend it. Earth Fathers Are Weird. I love it. You just made me think of the short story and we mentioned it recently from Terry Biss and the, um, they're made of meat. <laughs> Yes. What do you mean you don't want to eat them? They're made of meat. I always think 
when I'm like at a spa getting like a seaweed wrap or anything that I'm just being like, because I've also like come out of a hot tub or a sauna or whatever. So I've been basically sort of marinating and tenderized and I'm blanched and now I'm getting like salted and rubbed and scrubbed. And I'm like, oh, I'm being prepared for a barbecue. Like (laughs) there's no other explanation, but that the aliens are coming soon uh, to get me. It's an an alien Izakaya Mai, really. Yeah. So a new sieg over this way. You have a book out called The Heroine's Journey. And for a lot of people, we've grown up with Joseph Campbell and Jungian theories on the hero's journey. Tell us about the heroine's journey. Uh, Well, I uh, learned about both of them and uh, both the hero's journey and the heroine's journey because my background is as a classical archaeologist, which meant I had to take a lot of classics class which meant I ended up in a lot of like gender and like narrative analysis of the classics, because that's what particularly interests me. And so I came into being a professional writer and going on the like convention circuit and things like that, believing that everybody knew there were two. Uh, and, then, and also <laughs> that everybody thought of them as narrative analysis, because while we read and studied Campbell, the focus for my studies was mainly the sort of beats and, and trope usages and stuff like that of the of the story structure rather than the young end side of it. Um, right. So I should say that Murdoch has a young end analysis for the heroine's journey, but my particular interest is always in story structure. And so finally, I was like, well, where is the book on the heroine's journey story structure? Because people keep asking me about it and I keep talking about it at cons. Like everybody should know what I'm talking about. And somebody always raises their hand in the audience and says, what's that? And how is it different from the hero's journey? And so finally, after a decade of this, I was like, maybe I should write that book. <laughs> so well, it's good that you did, because the first one out in the field, I think that really sort of had the, that version for women, if you if you discount like Kate Elliott's Duran series, you get something like Jupiter Ascending, that all in one book, you know, a nothing, a cleaning toilet, Cedus discovers a legacy, has to do a lot of paperwork. The paperwork make it real for me, by the way. So, <laughs> and and then, you know, how the cycle and coming back to where she was. So, tell us how your heroine's journey works. It's very similar, sort of basic beat-wise. It's kind of similar to the hero's journey in terms of like withdrawal and return and crossing a threshold. It's just the heroine's evaluations of what is, what defines strength and her goals and her motivations are completely different from a hero's journey. And I should say from the start that these monikers are gendered by the titles that we have given them they aren't actually biologically they don't have to be a, it doesn't have to be a man on a hero's journey and it does, or a male and it doesn't have to be a woman or a female on the heroine's journey anyone male female non-binary can be on a heroine's journey I mean, use her because it's it's just it's cribbed and unfortunately most of the narratives we have to study from ancient structures are pretty binary so anyway the heroine generally speaking is sparked on her journey by a familial network being broken somebody being taken from her uh, her lover husband daughter sister something like that and that is what causes and then she commences a search so unlike a hero it's not a, it can be a quest but really it's more of a search so what she's looking for and what motivates her in general is reunification and family and in the case of a romance novel coupledom etc and she engages in a cycle that's not dissimilar from a hero's where she has a descent um, she continues on her search. A heroine is aided where heroes rarely are, or if a hero is aided, his aid is usually taken from him or killed. 
um, heroines are Aiden. So heroines journey often turn into sort of group narratives where she has a familiar or a companion or friends along the journey with her and they are helpful and assistive. And she's very good at delegating and identifying where they are good at something that perhaps she may not be as strong as that sort of a thing. So heroines make great generals, for example. And then during the course of her quest, she eventually manages to reunite with what was taken from her or rebuild what was taken from her and either finding the lost daughter or the lost family member and reuniting or building herself a new family in some guise. And that is attained through compromise, generally speaking, for a heroine. And these are all good things and they're seen as positives under the course of the narrative. So compromise can come off as a dirty word. Um, asking for or needing help or having assistance can come off as dirty concepts, especially in Western American thought. Uh, but the heroine's journey always sees that as strength. The ability to say, I need help with this thing, or you, my best friend, are going to be way better at slaying that dragon than I am. <laughs> I'm going to go research how to deal with this other thing while you slay the dragon. Um, those are sort of seen as, as weak under the context of the hero's journey in particular and in our own culture and zeitgeist as a result. Um, and it's unfortunate because the heroine's journey doesn't see those as weaknesses, it sees them as extreme strengths. Um, and so as kind of a side effect of that, the heroine's journey in general has kind of been critically disenfranchised and sort of ignored. So uh, narratives that end with connection and partnership and unity and happiness, you know, tend to be crit pretty critically ignored in both yeah popular culture um, and the literary world. Just the fact that the largest genre of that uh, outside of Hope Punk, which isn't that large, is the romance novel. Mm -hmm. And the romance novel, which is an art form, is usually denigrated. Yes, very, very much. It's definitely pillarized. It's, it's still a battle to, to get credit for uh, to be as being a romance writer, to own that identity without like shame or disgust. It's still a genre that all other genres feel very comfortable punching down to, uh, which generally causes me to like lose my tiny mind, clap slowly and accuse whoever's doing it as participating in 200 years of misogyny. Uh, Cause this all ties back to the rise of the Gothics and, um, uh, oh. and the education of women and the first uh, female writers of pulp of fiction on mass. I, I have to say your mind is not tiny nor lost that you know all that history and can bring it to bear. I just think <laughs> I just think if you if you want to tell me you hate romances, you're having a bad hissy fit and really need to calm down and read a few romances. <laughs> and I recommend your romances especially yes, it's it's so true. You're you're right. Like maybe if you're freaking out that much you probably need a little romance in your life. <laughs> I don't know. I, I want to at least a shout out to Outlander which finally leapt from romance historical romance under the screen and everybody wants to watch it now so i think maybe we might be in the age of the new romance is okay again bridgerton i hope so i mean bridgerton caused quite a fuss yeah i mean that, that there's a part of me that thinks i mean i this narrative theory and uh, demographic analysis of like popular fiction and stuff like that is one of my like dilettante hobbies i'm <laughs> totally fascinated by it and i have all of these theories about what happened during lockdown in the past year a part of which is that like if you study pop culture theory there's a great book on the hollywood industry called sleepless in hollywood by linda oates which basically talks about the death of the comedic movie like sleepless in seattle or when harry met sally 
um, which there just there just aren't that many of them anymore. There used to be so many, and they've sort of died down. And the temple movies have instead the temple movies like superhero movies, like these huge. Mm-hmm. And all of this has to do with the simple fact that the demographic that is catered to is the same demographic that tends to read romances. And I'm talking in very broad brushstrokes here, but it is women ages for uh, 25 to 65. And that particular demographic, which Linda Oates calls the uh, apple pie demographic, uh, has a history of never sitting down to watch a movie, never sitting down to do anything because they always have other things to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, um, But what happened with lockdown was they all sat down for a while and suddenly K-dramas became hugely popular. K-dramas are predominantly romances. Yeah, they are. Um, And and, and uh, just to be clear by K-drama, you mean Korean drama? Yes, Korean dramas. For listeners, thank you. Yeah, they tend to be long form romances, basically. And, And like, I know everybody's watching Squid Games, but the vast majority of K dramas. Um but you know, and, and you and we also saw things like Bridgerton be hugely, hugely popular. And I think a lot of that has to do with that for the first time in a long while, the demographic that's catered to with those dramas was actually still and willing to watch. I'm not sure once the world opens back up again if that's going to continue. But we'll see. I have to say that there's part of me that hoped I started watching the expanse because everybody loved it. And um, lest everybody shoot at me, I stopped when I thought that it was Naomi Nagata's um, heroine's journey. And at the end of the season one, when she's like, I just don't want to make any more command decisions. And here, why don't you take all my clothes off you great big man, you? (laughs) I lost it there because it was like, I loved her. I loved the conflict. I love the, you know, the, the witches in charge, who's going to be the leader. I thought that was made for amazing drama. And then she's like, I give it up and you can sleep with me too. It's like, okay, I'm out. And I, I <laughs> have not been able to bring myself to watch anymore. I, I haven't watched it myself, so I can't speak to the kind of betrayal that you're discussing. <laughs> but I will say that often when watchers or readers feel a tremendous sense of betrayal, it's because they've been unconsciously feeling that they've been on, for example, a hero's journey and it suddenly became a heroine's journey or vice versa. Um, or it's just that like foreshadowing or what have you wasn't set up under the context of the narrative in such a way that you're just like, well, that seems out of character. And I think as storytellers, as writers, it behooves us to play very, very close attention to when we feel that sensation and that frustration and to really try and step back and analyze why like what was it about how that character was written until that point or depicted on the screen until that point that made that upset you or upset the fan base in such a way um and how as writers can we personally avoid doing that (laughs) in our own works going forward like what lessons can we learn from this it's terrible i'm a comedic author by preference that's what i would describe myself primarily because i dabble in so many different genres and uh, it's made it very difficult for me to watch anything funny because every time I laugh, I have this instinct now to stop and be like, why was that funny? Why did I laugh? Which, which comedic, <laughs> what was being applied? Was it rule of three? Like, why was, why that? Why, why is that so funny? So it is, a ter- as I call this the bleeding editorial eye, which I'm, I hate to tell everybody who, who's an author out there. This is going to get worse and worse. Sorry, dude, we have not really discussed deeply into the rules of comedy. So, you know, that's. <laughs> <laughs> but like just in general now, it's really hard for me to read 
as a pure reader anymore. I'm always like, oh, why? Three word, three of the same word in two sentences, you know, that kind of thing will happen to me. And I'll just be like, God damn it. Um, and I can't, it's really hard for me to turn that aspect of my brain off um, and really just get lost in a book, you know, the way I maybe did as a teenager. Yeah, you're, if you can see the hooks, everything is suspended from, it's, it's the classic, if you do the technical aspect of theater, yeah. all of a sudden you see everyone wearing black. Yes, but also you can also admire it. Like there's also a part of me that's like, yes, but look how gracefully that person in black is moving across the stage. You know, there's a point at which you're like, okay, I can't really just appreciate the play anymore, but I can really appreciate how beautiful the set is built or what have you. Like you can, that you can still enjoy it. It's just, it's just the enjoyment of peers rather than, you know, the immersive experience of being the, the reader or the audience the, anymore. There is the third stage to this that I don't know if a writer ever reaches because I'm not much of a writer in this way, but when you get to the point where you've seen uh, a production, I'm going to use Midsummer Night's Dream because I have seen Midsummer Night's Dream a lot. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. Over 30 times, I think, where you've seen it so often that your mind just relaxes and goes, oh, okay, that's how that's done. And you can just keep your disbelief and revel in the, my God, this is an amazing puck or wow, yes. the, the couples make so much sense this time or that's a fascinating way to do the the accents to show the different class levels. Yeah, I I know I, I love it. Uh, this is this is a total segue, but one of my favorite things in the universe is seeing Austin um, or Shakespeare and and certain other plays with which I'm particularly familiar uh, reimagined and readapted in different settings or with different characters or what have you. Uh, so I was in a performance of Oklahoma when I was a kid a very long time ago. Um, and then I've seen it, of course, several times live. And I've also, I, I love musicals. And then I was recently up at the Oregon Shakespeare uh, Festival in Ashland. And I saw they did a queer, an entirely queer cast queer adaptation of Oklahoma. And it was so unbelievably good. It made me re-examine everything I knew about that play, everything I thought about that play. Like, and the audience was just so riveted by it and it was one of those like audience experiences where everybody gasps at the same time and it was just the most magical thing i would i would sell a kidney for a recording of that do not, <laughs> performance do not tell them that do not <laughs> <laughs> it was it was so good um so i mean that is the other you're right and and that will happen to me with a book there there are books where even now i'll pick it up and they do manage to take me in back to that back to that like writer fugue state mm -hmm. where i stop seeing any craft in it and i'm just back being absorbed in the story um it does not happen to be very often anymore but when it does happen i'm just like i can't i can't even write to tell you why I loved this book so much, it did that thing where I just freaking loved it. Um, and you should all read it. And I can't tell you why, because that whole part of my brain turned off. And I'm just reveling in the fact that this book was magical enough to do that to me. It's so. like flopping around in a beautiful, perfect swimming pool with all the right temperatures and all the right floating. <laughs> so exactly. So what are you working on right now? So I'm working on uh, sci-fi. So I had a I had a brain hiccup uh, during the last year and a half, which I think many do, and a lot of family drama and stuff like that, which I think many did. And uh, I stopped being able to write for a while. 
which did not freak me out as much as it probably should have, but also has happened to me before. So I was like, okay. Uh, fortunately, I've arranged my career at this juncture in my life where it's okay for me to take some time off by, you know, money saved up and I don't, I don't have to constantly be slaving over a computer, although I, I do not like disappointing my readers. And the thing that my brain relatched onto when it started like finding its muse again uh, was science fiction. Clearly, I wanted to leave the planet. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, we want to go away from Earth. <laughs> Fine. Okay, brain. Um, and since it was all I wanted to write, I was like, you can write it, just write it. Because uh, I had been trying to write anything and nothing had been coming out. And so I just let myself write whatever I wanted to. Uh, so I got a, I wrote a sort of very quirky, get this out of my system project, which um, is now sort of just came back from the developmental editor and I am terrified uh, to read it. Uh, yes, at 30 books, that still happens. <laughs> um, That's so comforting kind of, too. Yes. It's kind of sitting off to one side and I'm like, when I have the courage, I'll reopen that one. Because uh, it's real weird and quirky and kind of almost, almost serialistic rather than actual like story-ish. Anyway, it's a strange thing. It's a strange beast. And then my brain was like, ah, sci-fi. Uh, we are very happy and comfortable with this. And uh, during the course of COVID, one of the things I became incredibly fascinated by was the How the Wave, which is the Korean drama K-pop culture wave that's been happening. That's kind of yeah. somewhat intentional <laughs> from South Korea's standpoint in terms of uh, manipulating audience expectations, story structure, musical structure, um, in order to appeal to the widest, most international base possible. I think it's absolutely fascinating. It uh, like sparked all of these ideas about culture and uh, whether a war can be waged with entertainment um, and what and form that can. might take. <laughs> yeah, and what effect it might take, and you know, and then I got <laughs> then I got into uh, what's called Sasic fans, which are like obsessed fandom. Um, which is always something that's kind of both terrified me and interested me, which is the obsessive nature of people around celebrity and notions of celebrity. Uh, so then I got on deep dives where I ended up reading articles on JSTOR about uh, football hooliganism. You know, <laughs> These yeah. are things that happen when you're writers, right? Because a, a lot of the early research on fan obsession is, of course, the jocks. Uh, yeah. There's now more research on nerd fan obsession, but all the early research was all uh, sports related. Uh, so let's remember that John Hinckley Jr. had his crushes, and she was an actress. So yes, yeah. Then there's the, the yes. Um, there there's individual. I got into like group mentality and group obsession. Um, like why do does his mass uh, euphoric hysteria happen at like music concerts and stuff like that? So, and this has led me to my current writing project, which is a three book series. I'm going back into series. I haven't written, I've only written kind of spinoffs and standalones for quite a few years now. And I decided to really tackle this whole mess of a thing that my brain was very excited about. It needed three whole books uh, that follow a, a human who is recruited by aliens to become a mega star um, and goes through a training program which has very program aspects to it and then he's now on tour and then eventually uh, we will have uh, him sort of uncover everything that's kind of going on with these aliens and this entertainment system and what they're actually doing and what they're trying to do and all about them and all that sort of so it's a very much it's a big wide sweeping concept 
uh, space opera, which I'm calling putting the opera back in space opera because I never met a pun I could leave alone. <laughs> That's beautiful. And we we will put links to it as well as how people can oh, sign it. Oh, no, you it won't. It doesn't trip. exist. It doesn't, uh, there's no way to, you can't pre-order it. Uh, it's basically, you, you're going to be talking I'm, about it on the trip. On the trip, sign up for the trip. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> If you want to hear about it, that's where you can hear about it. Because if I start talking about this, like in written form online, people are like, where is it? I want to buy it. And I'm like, it's going to be months <laughs> before this thing comes out. And we'll yes. put that on yeah. our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter. Gail, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like we ranged over a lot of topics that I, I hope some of the listeners found some use in it. I found Absolutely. plenty of use. I am now saving my money for this series of books. I may ask if Subterranean Press will fire them. I want to know if they're in the five genders. Yeah, I'll shut up and read them. <laughs> it is. It is, in fact, in the fifth gender universe. Yes. Excellent. See, now we know something. Now you know, everybody should buy everything that Gail writes. <laughs> and most of what I read, too. I'm always talking about uh, what I've read recently and what books I, I'm always recommending other books as well. Um, yeah, yes. I like I like to pimp other authors as much as humanly possible because I can only write at most two books a year. Okay, you've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is by Drew Drushween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is Dave Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Langberg. You can hear more from Michael Langberg on ManyHatsMusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs and whatever favorite hot, whatever favorite coffee store is near you. And hey, thanks for listening. <laughs>